The God of the Bible is a God who punishes. Speaking about God punishing people, though, is never a popular subject. It's cringy. It's awkward. We don't like it. The idea that you've done stuff in your life and are still doing things now that God would punish you for is not exactly what most people want to hear. And although we live in a society that doesn't really believe in sin, it's still unattractive to be told that you're a sinner or that I'm a sinner who deserves to be punished. My wife and I were visiting some friends in Oxford uh, a few months ago. Uh, And this guy we were seeing, he became a Christian at university and recently got baptized. Uh, The rest of his family aren't Christians. And his mum was saying that she doesn't like this new language that this uh, this guy speaks in, calling himself a sinner. You know, he's my boy, he's a good son, not a sinner. But to not talk about God punishing sin is to avoid a major part of his character. God's word is truth and the God of the Bible is a God who punishes rebellion against him. I mean, yes, this is a tough passage here in Genesis 3, but to skip over these difficult, tricky, awkward bits of the Bible would show a lack of trust in the power and authority of the word of God. So let's just remind ourselves of where we are at this point in Genesis 3. God's made the world and everything in it, and everything's good, and mankind he calls very good. The relationship between God and mankind is is the high point of creation. God and Adam and Eve enjoy perfection in the Garden of Eden. Perfect relationship, perfect fellowship, perfect joy. It's very good. Then the first sin is committed in Chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, as we saw last week. That one act of disobeying God has laid the foundations for the rest of human history, and we see the beginning of that in the passage here tonight. It would be helpful now just to have a reminder of what sin is. The politically correct version of sin is having the last piece of cake or a little bit of ice cream. But here in Genesis 3, sin is defined as disobeying God's good commands. We see that as God asks Adam in verse 11, when he says, Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat from? And every day, and in every way that we fail to obey God's commands, we sin. We can sin in our actions, in our attitude, in our own nature. It brings pain and harmful consequences to ourselves and the people affected by it. It is opposite to everything God, uh, everything God is, and therefore God hates sin. A big push has been made in the youth work here over many years to get the young people to understand sin as the attitude of the heart that says, S, shove off God, I, I'm in charge, N, no to your rule, S-I-N, sin. Many of the young people will tell you that's what sin is, and it's a nice, simple definition. And we have all sinned, and we all need to face up to that. So I've got three points tonight. 
Firstly, when faced with our sin, we blame others. Secondly, when faced with our sin, God punishes. And thirdly, when faced with our sin, God provides hope. So firstly then this evening, when faced with our sin, we blame others. We blame others. When we've realized we've sinned, it's so easy to not take responsibility for it and to shift the blame. That's exactly what Adam and Eve do in the first few verses of the passage. The deed has been done. The first devastating sin has been committed. And it's time for Adam and Eve to come face to face with their creator, the Lord God. It starts out with what we'd imagine to be a normal event in the Garden of Eden. God's walking. He's seeking Adam and Eve. This is a good thing. God comes to his people. But in verse 8, there's a problem. Adam and Eve are nowhere to be found. They're hiding and ashamed. The once perfect relationship between God and mankind has already been broken before a word has even been spoken. This is their God. He's made them and talked with them and provided a perfect paradise for them to live in. And yet they're hiding because they don't even want to be seen by God. They're hiding in the very trees that he made for them to enjoy. And God calls out to Adam in verse 9. Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Already the openness that was once enjoyed has given way to fear. And God says, verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? God's not asking here because he doesn't know what's happened. He knows the guilt of man here, and God's heart is broken. There's now shame and dishonor. Adam now needs to own up. Imagine this situation, you might know it quite well. You've come home from work or popped out and you come home and your four-year-old son has his face covered in strawberry jam. It's dripping from his chin, there's bits of sugar in his eye, you're not sure where the redness of the jam ends and the redness of the lips begin and you ask, have you eaten the jam? Now you fully well know they've eaten the jam. But they might still look you in the eye and say, no. It might be a bit cute when you ask your kid if they've eaten strawberry jam, but you know they're guilty. With Adam and Eve, though, it's not cute, but irreversibly tragic. Adam attempts to distance himself from his responsibility down in verse 12. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then to the woman, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the snake deceived me and I ate. Adam and Eve try and shift the blame. Adam, what have you done? It wasn't me, it was the woman. Eve, what have you done? It wasn't me, it was the snake. Time may keep rolling on, but we humans are still the same today as in the garden. Right from a young age, we don't like the idea that we're sinners and we try and cover up our responsibility and hide from the fact that we're sinners who deserve punishment. So we come up with all kinds of reasons and excuses to justify ourselves. If we're put on the defensive, we'll go on the offensive. 
We should take responsibility for our sin, but we look for tiny faults in other people to shift the blame. And this can be so sly and deceptive and comes in many different forms. It wasn't my fault. Everyone else in my team made far bigger mistakes. Don't blame me. Blame society. If it wasn't for that one thing or that that one person, I would never have done that. And my favorite, they did it too. It's the same heart as the one that says, I've not eaten the jam, but we just get better at covering sin up as we get older. And our excuses become more and more subtle. We twist our words in order to make it seem like things we did or said aren't actually that bad. There's the classic, uh, I'm sorry if you were upset, which is really code for what I did wasn't wrong. In fact, you're wrong for pointing out what I did was wrong. This covering up and blaming is so ingrained in our human system that it makes it so hard to say what I did was wrong. When was the last time you said that to your spouse after hurting them? Or to a friend after letting them down? Or to colleagues or or even kids? We are responsible for our sin. And no matter how much we try and cover it up, it doesn't change the fact that it is our sin and our guilt. Sure, other people and situations may lead up to an event, but sin is ultimately our responsibility. It's no use trying to blame shift. God will find you out. We are responsible for our sin. The word you or your is used 39 times in this passage here. Things like, have you eaten from the tree? What is this you have done? And the more we shift the blame of our sin, the more we try and cover it up, the easier it is to forget how serious sin is. It cannot be swept under the rug. It will always be found out. And it must be dealt with. Let's not fall into the danger of forgetting that we deserve to be punished by God because of our sin. We won't get away with blaming others. You are responsible for your sin and God will punish. And this is the next point today. When faced with our sin, God punishes. God punishes. Let's be clear. A God who is good must be a God who punishes wrongdoing. We wouldn't say that a judge is good if they let people get away with with doing things wrong and let guilty people walk free. So we shouldn't wonder how God can be good if he punishes. Rather, we should wonder how God could be good if if he didn't punish. And because this world and everything in it ultimately belongs to God, every sin, therefore, is also committed against God. An individual sin might be against yourself or another person, but it is also ultimately against the Lord God. And because he's perfect and holy, he therefore has the ability and the right to judge and punish. So there are punishments here in Genesis 3 for Adam, for Eve, and for the snake. And we saw 
last week that this snake is Satan, who used this snake to tempt Eve. And God begins the punishment in verse 14. So the Lord God said to the snake, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. The reason for this punishment is that it turns a snake into a symbol and a reminder of the punishment and humiliation that is due to Satan, which we see in in the next verse, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Granted, it's rare to see one in England, but every time you see a snake crawling, let that remind you of the humiliation and punishment that is to come to Satan. But there's further humiliation and punishment for Satan here. He perhaps thought that once Adam and Eve had sinned, that they'd be on his side against God. Unfortunately for Satan, God promises enmity, conflict between Satan and mankind. Just because humans have sinned, it doesn't mean that we're going to join Satan's team and be against God. This is a big blow to Satan. But an even bigger blow is the promise there in verse 15 that someone down the line is going to crush Satan. Satan might win a battle with a strike, but the head, the focus of who Satan is, will ultimately be destroyed. That is Satan's punishment. God then moves on to punish the woman Eve in verse uh, 16. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What was made beautiful and complementary in chapter 2 has now become broken. The perfect relationship between man and woman has been demolished. It seems as if Eve is depersonalized here and just referred to in terms of bodily functions as a bearer of children and a baby machine. She'll want her husband, try and manipulate him, but the text says he will rule over her. The high standard of marriage that we have of to love and to cherish has now become to desire and to dominate. And let me be very clear here that this is a description of the punishment of the woman and a description of what the relationship in a fallen world looks like, not a command as to how things should be. This is a description, not a command. We all want to be in control and dominate, and this has led to the battle of the sexes that we see today. We also see the effects of this punishment in the breakdown of relationships. Disagreements over tiny things can grow and grow and cause relationships to tear apart. What was created to be a relationship between man and woman without shame has turned into relationships with fear, lies, secrets, abuse, and divorce. The next chapter, chapter 4, verse 7 helps us to understand this verse a bit more. There in chapter 4, verse 7, God says that sin desires to have Cain, but that Cain must rule over it. These words are identical in the verses. So the desire here is not some sort of sexual desire, 
but a desire to defeat and subdue. The punishment will create exploitation and dominance. And again, that is sadly what we see today. This is not what womanhood should be, but it's a punishment as a result of sin. God then moves on to punish the man, Adam, in verse 17. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken... For dust you are, and to dust you will return. This is a terrible judgment on the man. There are personal, physical, and spiritual punishments upon him. The earlier commands of being fruitful and cultivating the ground have now become toilsome and miserable. The created order has flipped on its head. Even eating becomes a reminder of sin in the toil that it took to work the ground for the food. Thorns and thistles are taken up again in the Bible to refer to signs of God's judgment on the nations. What man was created to do and to flourish in has now frankly become an endless, meaningless cycle of toil, sweat, and death. Every time you wake up tired, go to work tired and come home tired, it's because of sin. Everywhere we look and see thorns and thistles Every time something's toilsome, and sadly, every time someone dies, we're reminded of this punishment from God. Sin has tainted everything, and the effects of sin have spilled over into all aspects of life. And we haven't yet seen the worst punishment, though. The worst punishment is that God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden, from his presence, Adam and Eve have sinned and been punished, but they're still in the garden. They're still in God's presence. God has promised that death will come, so he needs to keep Adam and Eve away from the tree of life that they might live forever. So we see then in verse 23 that uh, the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. God has just banished the very people he's created. This banishment is such a severe punishment because it means that the perfect fellowship and relationship with God is no more. It means that for the whole of human history, including you and me today, that we are excluded from God's presence. We are alienated from him. There's this barrier. And if eternal life is to be with God forever, then logically we cannot have it if we are banished from his presence. There's no use with us blaming Adam and Eve for this situation because we still sin today. We ourselves are responsible for our broken relationship with God and we live in a banished state from him and we are responsible for that. We can no longer enjoy God's presence as we were made to do so. Edward Donnelly, a former pastor in Northern Ireland, writes this. 
We don't want to hear about God's punishments because it tells us that sin is more serious and more terrible than we have ever wanted to imagine. That is so true. We are broken. We're a broken people. This world is decaying. And it's the world we created for ourselves and the world we deserve. Now, if any of these punishments seem a bit extreme to you, let me say that it is our understanding of justice and punishment that is wrong rather than than God's. Our ideas of sin fall far short of how serious it actually is. We're in no position to say that God's punishments are wrong or too harsh because we simply do not understand how serious sin is. We're confused about what's right and what's wrong. Multiple sexual partners is standard. Casual nudity on TV is normal. Blasphemy is heard every day. The right to life from the moment of conception to its natural end isn't respected. And those things raise no eyebrows and cause no issues. And yet if someone cuts in front of you at the checkout at Lidl, you can feel the fury. So if we struggle to tell the difference between bad manners and evil wickedness, then we're in no position to claim that God's punishments are wrong. We simply do not know how much punishment a sin deserves. God does. The God of the Bible is the God who punishes sinners. These punishments to Adam and Eve have affected all of humanity and the whole world. Creation today is still groaning, and we are still sinning. Well, what now then? Well, there are strong glimmers of hope throughout this passage. And this is the final point today, when faced with our sin, God provides hope. There is hope, because a way back to God needs to be made. There are two particular pieces of hope that I want us to see here, but... First, I want to give a passing mention to verse 20 and verse 21. God has just promised death, but verse 20 says Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Life is still going to happen. And in verse 21, God provides clothing. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This is God solving their immediate problems and providing them with a visible sign of protection hope and dignity. And it's worth noting as well that something has to die here to cover Adam and Eve. But the two main points of hope I want us to see start in verse 15. In verse 15, we get a glimpse of the good news of the gospel. I said earlier that this promise is that a descendant will one day come and crush Satan. Satan will be destroyed. And so all the way through the Bible, we're looking for this promised descendant, this promised person. And he comes and his name is Jesus. He's God in the flesh. And he dies. He's struck. But Satan didn't know that Jesus' death would be the crushing of Satan. Because on the cross, as Jesus died, he took the punishment that we deserve, that you deserve, that I deserve deserve. He took that. Jesus takes our place. He swaps himself in for us. He takes the punishment we deserve so that you can be blameless, innocent, and free. All the anger 
and punishment that we deserve because of our sin, all that gets put onto Jesus. And he gives you his life. And then he rises again, showing that death is defeated, Satan's schemes will come to an end, and these punishments will be reversed. If you trust in Jesus and what he's done for you, then there is no punishment for you. You're free. You're free. This is the good news of Jesus. This is a fixed and firm hope because Jesus has already come. Sure, we still live in a broken world now, but Satan's end is sure. The Apostle Paul in Romans 16 verse 20 ends his letter by saying that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We will witness the end of Satan when Jesus returns. That's the first piece of hope for you. Jesus crushes Satan and takes our punishment. But how can we have access to God? How can we have access? We're still banished from his presence. Well, secondly, a way back to God has been made. When Jesus died, not only did he take the punishments that we deserve, but when he died, he was forsaken. He was banished by his father God on the cross. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is punished and banished by God in your place so that you don't have to be. And let's take a look again at chapter 3, verse 24. Here we have cherubim guarding the Garden of Eden. They're guarding the way to God's presence. Cherubim are mighty angels that are described elsewhere in the Bible as God's personal guards. Images of cherubim would have been sewn into the curtain that separated God's people from his presence in the Jewish temple. They're very much a sign of separation from God. Yet at that moment of Jesus' death, Matthew 27, 51, says that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Those cherubim are no longer there. They're no longer guarding the way to God. The way to God is open. The way to life is open. Jesus died, took up punishment, crushed Satan, and opened the way back to full eternal life and fellowship with God. He opened the way back to life. You know, a day is coming where God will make all things new once more. The punishments on us and on this world will be reversed. They'll end. It will be like a return to Eden. God has come to us and we will walk freely with him without shame. We'll have peace where there was pain. Rest where there was toil. Life where there was death. The way back to full, eternal life and fellowship with God is there for you. The size of our sin is huge, but the love of our Savior is bigger. Shall we pray?
why not take a moment in the quietness of your heart to thank God for sending his son to pay for your sin. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you that he took the punishment that we deserve. Help us to marvel at that every day, to be in awe and thanks of that sacrifice. Would you help us to, uh, to live freely, to look forward uh, to the new heavens and the new earth. Help us not to take our sin lightly. Much remember the great cost. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.